0: I'd like you to journey back with me a little more than a century, back to June 28, 1914. We find ourselves in the city of Sarajevo, in Bosnia. And history buffs in the room will immediately know the significance. This is the date and the location of the assassination that started World War I. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he had traveled to Sarajevo. He was assassinated on this date. Like I said, the history buffs will, will know the date, but whether or not you love history or not, there are two critical facts about this day that you need to know. Fact number one, the intelligence community knew the assassination was coming. In fact, the Serbian ambassador had given strict warnings not to come. There were seven assassins. They knew the names of all seven. And they knew the names of all seven so far in advance that arrest warrants had been granted and delivered to all the borders. And yet, somehow, their words of warning were not heeded, and all seven assassins made it across the border into the city of Sarajevo without detection. Fact number two, even with the assassins in Sarajevo, the assassination was entirely avoidable. See what happens: they're driving through the city, Franz Ferdinand and the whole motorcade. His wife is next to him. And one of these assassins launches a hand grenade at his car. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees it coming and smacks it away. And it bounds back a couple of vehicles and then explodes. Hits the car. There's minor damages. They Speed off to the hospital. They treat the injuries, which proved to not be life-threatening for anyone. The dignitaries met at the hospital. They had their little kumbaya time together. They gave their speeches in front of the hospital staff and began to leave. No loss of life. But what happened next is one of the most remarkable mysteries of history. As they're leaving, the driver of the motorcade that has Archduke Franz Ferdinand in it Somehow got on the wrong path, whether he received wrong directions, whether he wasn't listening carefully, we don't know. But when he made his first wrong turn, the Secret Service yelled at him, like, what are you doing? He slams on his brakes, and as he slams on his brakes, he's right in front of a lunch cafe. And sitting at the outdoor lunch cafe is the lead assassin. He's shocked to see the vehicle stopped 10 feet in front of him. He stands up. Pulls his weapon out, shoots the archduke in the neck and his wife in the stomach. They fled to the hospital and died before arriving. Should have been averted. But the driver didn't pay close attention to the path he was on. That's the part they don't give you in the history textbooks. You know, it's like, wow, there's a lot more to this story. Why do I tell you that story? Fact one, the words of warning were not closely watched. They knew it was coming. In fact, too, the path of their journey was not closely watched. And it was a matter of life and death with costs that were incalculable. The cost of World War I that would ensue in 1915 dollars was $125 billion, with a B. And of infinitely more significance, 20 million lives would be lost. That's like imagining... Every single person in Michigan and Indiana and Kentucky dies. Now, if they knew the cost, do you think they would have paid more attention to the words of warning and the path they were on? You sure would hope so, don't you? It was a matter of life and death. And that's essentially the message of 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. Keep a close watch on the teaching, the words, and on the path you're on your your life, because it is a matter of life and death. If your copy of God's Word is open, I'll invite you to look at the very last verse that Phil read, as it gives the summary of what this whole passage is trying to tell us. 1 Timothy 4.16 says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In other words, the path and the words. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The main idea of the sermon this morning, the main idea of this passage, is simply this. Faithfulness to the words and ways of Jesus is a matter of life and death, so disciples must keep watch. If you're taking notes, I invite you to write that down. Faithfulness to the words and ways of Jesus is a matter of life and death, so disciples must keep watch. Now, if you're new with us, Give you a little of a backstory here. We began 1 Timothy all the way back in September of 23. We took a break for the holidays, and now we're jumping back in. So to quickly catch you up to speed, 1 Timothy chapter 1 is talking to us about getting the gospel right. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the message. Then chapter 2 talks about the importance of prayer and how prayer both protects and promotes the gospel. That's why we gathered this morning at 9 a.m. for a time of prayer, because the Lord commands that his house be called a house of prayer. And then chapter 3 moves forward, and it talks about the importance of church leadership, of pastors and deacons, in protecting and promoting this gospel that's given in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. You come to chapter 4, and you start to find a bit of a hinge chapter. I think this passage is a hinge passage where the book of 1 Timothy begins to pivot a little bit. We had core beliefs and church structures, and now it pivots to say, here's what it's supposed to look like in the life of the church. You get the roots established deep in God's word, and here's the fruit that you're supposed to see. You come to chapter 4, and there's two basic categories that I see Paul describing to us, and these will form the outline of our message. It says it's resolutions of a good servant. There's three of them. And then there are results in a good servant. There are two of those. So resolutions of a good servant, and then results in the good servant. You will notice these are specific to Timothy. He's a pastor in the city of Ephesus. So this passage, I think, does have some special and specific application to pastors. But the language of 1 Timothy 4 doesn't just say pastors should do this, elders should do this. It says good servants of Jesus Christ should do this. So this is applicable to every single Christian not merely to pastors. And there's a phrase that shows up three times in the passage. You've got to understand before you can get the meaning of the passage. And let me show you that, and then we'll get into the outline. Three times. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, those two words, these things are critical. It says you'll be a good servant of Jesus. Then verse 11. Command and teach these things. Then Verse 15. Practice these things. These things. Shows up three times in a row. What are these things? What's it referring to? And it all goes back to the end of chapter 3, where Paul restated the gospel. It was one of the earliest Christian catechisms or hymns. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, taken up in glory. This is the nuclear core of Christianity, who Jesus is, what he did, put these things before the brothers, command and teach these things to the brothers, practice these things before the brothers, the words and the ways of Jesus. You must not move on from them, Paul is saying to Timothy. In other words, the main thing, Timothy, is for you to keep the main thing, the main thing. And it's easy to move on from the main thing. So you got to keep close watch so that you don't do that. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy and to us. He's exhorting him to stick to what Jude would call the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Don't move on from that. Don't go for the next shiny object. Stick to Jesus, 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 his words and his ways for all of life. As a result, this sermon is not gonna be a real complex one because the passage is not real complex. It's pretty action-oriented. It's pretty direct. Here's what you gotta remember. Here's what you need to do. And hopefully the sermon reflects what the passage tells us. Let's get started with the resolutions of a good servant. I said that would be the first point. Resolutions of a good servant. A resolution is a firm conviction, a commitment. A resolution is not flippant. It is not impulsive. It's a gut-level, deep conviction. These are the resolutions of a good servant that all of you should make. First resolution, Paul says, watch your teaching pick up in verse six here's what he says if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of christ jesus being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths because watch your teaching put these things before the brothers have nothing to do with these other irreverent silly myths that will distract from you or from jesus rather what were the myths of the day we could speculate, we don't know with certainty, but they distracted from Jesus. They distracted from his words and his ways. And so we know that good servants make a resolution, I resolve to prioritize faithful teaching of the words and the ways of Jesus. Now, if you're a teacher here, this is particularly important that you think about this. You must be careful to teach the whole counsel of God, not just your favorite topic, not your favorite passage, Not just telling your favorite stories with a random Bible verse tapped on there. Faithfulness to the Word of God. If you're a teacher, one of your 2024 resolutions should be, in 2024, I resolve to serve up faithful meals from the Word of God and help those under my teaching see how to apply it to their lives. We'll teach the words and the ways of Jesus. But many of you are not teachers, and you're saying, Justin, what, what does this mean? Anything for me as I just move on to the next part? No, it's important as if you're not a teacher that you resolve, you resolve to keep an eye on the teaching, that you listen carefully, and you examine Scripture to see if the things that are being taught are in accord with Scripture. Acts 11 commends the Berean church for doing just that. And you absolutely ought to do that in your local church, but you also ought to be doing that with the podcasts you consume, with whom you follow on Instagram and what you're listening to or watching on YouTube. Is this in accord with sound doctrine? Are there irreverent, silly myths being promulgated? They're distracting me from Jesus. We talk about the importance of expository preaching, but there's what some have called expository listening, that you listen with your Bible open and let the Bible be the judge, not your own opinions be the judge. And for all of us, we recognize even if you're not a formal teacher... All of your life in one way or another is teaching, and good servants of Jesus resolve to be putting him forward all the time. And just as in the first century there was no shortage of irreverent silly myths, certainly in our day we have no shortage of irreverent silly myths that will distract us from Jesus even in the church. Pastor Steve just referenced the election year Boy, Satan would love nothing else than in 2024 to get us more focused on something besides the gospel of Jesus Christ than that gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, may we resolve in 2024 that we will be grounded in his word and not moved from his word. Doesn't mean we don't care about the happenings in our world, we care deeply about them. But there are some things that are of first importance. There's a thousand other ways besides election years we can get distracted from the things that matter the most. And Paul doesn't say, well, press pause on that for a bit. Take a little fast from that. Take a little sabbatical from that social media account. He says, have nothing to do with those irreverent, silly myths. And so I wonder, just speaking about applying this, if that doesn't mean that there's somebody that you're used to hanging out with that maybe you need to spend a little less time with in 2024 because they're distracting you from following Jesus with irreverent, silly myths. I wonder if there's a social media app that you need to not take a break from but just delete altogether. I wonder if there's a channel that you love watching that you probably need not watch because it's not helping you follow Jesus. Resolve to watch the teaching carefully. What's coming into you will absolutely impact what comes out of you and where you're going. So pay close attention, Paul says. He comes to the second resolution. He says, not only watch your teaching, but watch your training. Watch your training. We pick up in the second part of verse 7. He says this, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. It's as if Paul is saying there's temporal training and temporal value, and there's eternal training, and there's eternal value, and you're wise to focus on the long term. It's not a complicated principle. Many of you know that last year I ran my first half marathon, probably my last as well, but it was good while it lasted, and I started out with a goal. I wanted to run in a certain time. I had the end in mind I was looking at the long term, months in advance, and I sought counsel from people who knew more about running and and dietary things and how to prepare. And so I started my training. But you know what happened as I started my training towards that marathon? I learned things about running and about my body and about the weather. And if it was a certain temperature outside, it was okay to run. And if it got lower than that, it's probably good to stay inside on the treadmill. And I got more specific in my training after I had gotten started. Do you train for godliness in a similar way? Have you gotten started, and are you getting more specific in training yourself to be more like Jesus? The other day, someone asked me, they said, Justin, are you still running? And I hesitated to ask the question, because I didn't quite know how to answer it. And I thought, well, I ran about a mile and a half about three weeks ago. Does that count? You know what? Had they asked me, Justin, are you still training? I would have answered that question dramatically differently. I said, oh, no way. And I wonder if we don't think about our Christian life in a similar way. Are you still running? Well, kind of. I did something about a month ago. Are you training for godliness? Are you actively pursuing it? You've started, you're getting more specific, and you have the end-to-end goal. Here's where I'm going. And maybe you haven't started training, and that's one of your application points today. I need to think about where am I going? Am I training myself for godliness? What is my regimen going to look like? Do I need to increase my Bible intake? Do I need to be at the Bible Institute tonight and get started studying 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John with other brothers and sisters who will help me to train myself for godliness? Do I need to consider my neighbors around me who don't know Christ, and I need to be seeking ways to be more involved in their life? We need to be making plans for the Super Bowl because we need to have them over because they don't know Jesus yet, and I need to be pursuing them, training myself for godliness. Maybe you need to make plans of how you're gonna kill sin in 2024. You've been afraid to bring it out into the light, because it's scary to do that. I'm gonna train myself for godliness. There's all sorts of ways we look at that, but are you training yourself there? You start your training. And once you get started, you will get more specific as you learn what's going on, and it always happens best in community, growing through relationships with other brothers and sisters to link arms just as my mini-marathon training was better in community, with some guys to encourage me with good ideas, other guys to encourage me with accountability when I wanted to stop, so it is in your training for godliness. Good servants of Jesus Christ resolve to watch their training. Third resolution they make, they resolve to watch their toiling. Watch your toiling. We'll pick up in verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what Paul says. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Because we've set, we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially those who believe. Paul says, I have watched my toiling. What I'm striving for, I pay close attention to. Now, the last phrase of verse 10 can be a little bit confusing to us. He is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Justin, what does that mean? It's a little confusing for some of us, many of us. There's lots of views on that passage. Excuse me. One of the core principles of Bible study we need to embrace is sometimes there are passages that are not super clear and we interpret the difficult ones in light of the easier ones or the unclear ones in light of the clear ones at all times. So we ask the question, he is the savior of all people. Does this mean all people are saved? Whether or not they confess Jesus as Lord or not, this is a doctrine called universalism. It is a heretical doctrine. We reject that. But it is a grievous thing that not all people are saved, that not everyone knows the name of Jesus has been saved by his blood. It is grievous that billions are on their way to eternal damnation in hell. I could show you a whole host of passages that are clear to make that point as we compare scripture along with scripture. Let me show you just one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, we read this he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. It's pretty clear. I could show you 10 other passages. For the sake of time, I won't. But we then say, okay, this passage isn't teaching universalism, that everyone is saved. What does it mean then? And there are many views, but let me give you mine. It's simply it this way. Because of our sin, our rebellion against God, we deserve immediate judgment from God. That's what we deserve. And God saves all people from immediate judgment. He's not delivered all of us up right away. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of common grace, that God extends grace in ordinary ways of enjoying the sunlight and the beauty of the snow and good food and relationships and all sorts of things like that to all people. The doctrine of common grace. But he especially saves believers because they're saved from eternal damnation in hell, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And I hold that interpretation for two reasons. One, I think it's actually, there's a degree of similarity in the passage. Verse 8 talks about there's some temporal value in bodily training, but eternal value in training for godliness, short-term, long-term. And verse 10, here's some short-term benefit, grace, from God for all, and then long-term, more particular, special benefit for those who are believers. I think there's some, some symmetry there. But also that word in verse 10 that says Savior could also be translated a little bit differently. It might be translated provider or nurturer or preserver. He's the provider for all people, especially the provider for those who believe. That would give an indication to what happens to all versus what happens to Christians. Happy to talk more about that after if you have questions. But with some clarity being brought there, we can then turn our attention to Resolution 3, Disciples, Good Servants... Watch their toiling. What does that mean? Because there's many things that we toil and strive for, are there not? You should toil and strive for some relationships, toil and strive for good health, toil and strive at your work, toil and strive for the Lord. What does it mean to watch your toil and striving? I think one of the ways I know to watch my toiling and striving is to consider what is it that I'm excited about? To remember. People often forget what you say, but they do remember what you're excited about heard someone say one time, how do you know if someone uses essential oils? Oh, don't worry about it. They'll tell you. <laughs> They're excited about it. And you can make the same joke, right? How do you know somebody's Ohio State fan? Don't worry about it. They'll tell you how much Michigan cheats. <laughs> you know, how do you know someone's an IU fan? Don't worry about it. They'll tell you how much Purdue falls down and, well, all the time. You, know, you, you go on and on. The things you're excited about naturally flow out of you. The things you toil and strive for are the things you're most excited about? They grip your heart and they flow out of you. To so resolve to watch your toiling, resolve to watch what are the things that most naturally flow out of me in conversation. Paul says that this most important thing that you toil and strive for is that you have set your hope on the living God. That's what verse 10 says. How does this spill out of you then, Christian? Let me ask. If it's normal for you to spend time with other believers, perhaps over a meal, perhaps in their home, perhaps at church, perhaps going to a game, if it's normal for you to spend time with them and not be talking about what God is teaching you or what you're asking God to do in your life or how your hope is being changed by him amid suffering, if it's normal that you don't do any of those things, you need to watch your toiling and striving. Because those things ought to be bubbling up, naturally flowing out. And it doesn't mean the only thing you can ever talk about is Jesus. But if you can frequently be together with other believers and not talk about Jesus, perhaps you're setting your hope on other things besides the living God. And I recognize that there may be many of you here today who aren't yet Christians. You're interested in the Bible. Someone invited you. But you haven't believed yet. You're not sure. Let me just remind you of what this passage says, that the hope is set on the living God. There's a clear contrast throughout all the Bible of the living God who actually saves you in contrast with dead gods, or sometimes you hear dead idols who are unable to save you. They can't do anything for you. There's only temporary benefit from those kinds of gods, whether it be your job, whether it be money that you desire, whether it be food, whether it be sex, whether it be a relationship, there's, there's all kinds of things you can pursue. Boy, with that thing, my life will have hope, and I will be happy. Can I just urge you, turn to Jesus today. He is the living God who will deliver you from eternal judgment that is to come for everyone. He's the only living God, the only hope of the world. I heard someone describe it recently this way, and it's, uh, it might strike you as a bit odd. It might even strike you as a bit offensive, but I think it's a good analogy. They said, do you remember a time when you were a child and you had a small blankie that you had to have, or a stuffed animal that you had to have? And at that point, you thought, I need that. And hopefully you've grown out of that stage. I didn't see any stuffed animals coming in with the adults this morning. But perhaps you look back with fond memories to that stage in your life. Those were good days back then. But if somebody said to you, today, is that the one thing you must have? You ought to say, no, I don't need that in the same way anymore. It might be nice to have, but I don't need it in the same way. Friends, to grow in maturity and set your hope on the living God is to be able to look back at other things and say, I used to need that. I couldn't leave home without that. I can remember that day, but I've grown in maturity. I've set my hope on the living God, and I don't need that anymore. might be nice to have for a little bit, but I don't have to have that. And if you haven't set your hope on the living God, I urge you to do that today, because the day will come when that blankie, that job, won't be able to do for you anymore what it can right now. So take action while you can. These are resolutions of a good servant of Jesus Christ to watch your teaching, watch your training, watch your toiling. And it brings us to the results in a good servant. If you resolve to do these things, there are some results you ought to see. If your roots are planted in the word of God, there are fruits you ought to see. Look for these results because if you think you've made the resolutions, but the results aren't there, maybe your resolutions aren't quite as strong and convictional as you thought they were is essentially what Paul says here. So there's two results of a good servant. Here's the first one. You walk in boldness. Results of a good servant, or results in a good servant, is that you walk in boldness. Look at verse 11. Here's what Paul writes. Very simple, direct, straightforward action statement. Command and teach these things. Notice, Paul's not apologizing for the word of God. He's not shrinking back from the word of God. He's saying, no, good servant of Jesus Christ, Timothy, you are to command and teach these things. Command and teach the centrality of Jesus Christ for all of life. Notice on commanding certain things, he's not speaking to matters of Christian liberty, but the central words and ways of Jesus. And there's a progression of thought. Verse 6, very first phrase Put these things before the brothers. It's as if you lay a meal before your children. And the progression is as I resolve to go deeper into that, I'm no longer merely putting the green beans in front of the kids. I'm commanding them, you're going to eat your green beans because it's good for you. I have this firm conviction that you need to eat green beans before you eat the chocolate cake. And in a world where it's filled with my truth and your truth and somebody else's truth and is there any truth, you might reject that framework of thinking and rightly reject it, but you easily lose the conviction to command and teach what God's Word says, lest someone else think you're a bigot or you think you're being too close-minded or too dogmatic. And Paul says, no, this is the result that you ought to see in a good servant of Jesus Christ, that you are convictional and commanding and teaching these things. That you're able to look across the table to a brother or a sister or to look in the mirror at yourself and say, God commands that I forgive you. That you're able to look out and say, God commands that you cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. God commands that you flee from sexual immorality. In Timothy 2 in verse 22 you see, it's easy to say, yeah, we need to command and teach these things until you think about that instance where someone needs to be commanded to obey those things. And then you realize that is a tough thing to do. I must walk in boldness with conviction behind the words and the ways of Jesus. And it's not only for Christians either. This is for unbelievers as well that you must command. God is calling all people everywhere to repent. That's what he says through us, through our proclamation of the gospel. Now, I want to clarify just a little bit here. To say command and teach these things doesn't say to yell louder, to be a jerk, and to revert to name-calling. That's not the same thing, right? The gospel is plenty offensive on its own. It doesn't need your offensiveness to go with it either. But it does require obedience and action. And Paul says command and teach these things. And so I invite you to think, Christian, is there a time you can recall where I was commanding and teaching the words and ways of Jesus, and when was that? Because if you can't recall when that was happening, or it was, you know, I think I did that a year ago, or maybe six months ago, or three years ago, I think Paul would like to say, you should take a look at that, because that's not what good servants of Jesus do. They don't fail to command and teach these things. Here's the second result we ought to look for. Yes, we walk in boldness, but we also walk in the basics. We walk in boldness and we walk in the basics. I put verse 15 on the screen there for the slides, but it could really, if you want, extend it really 12 through 15. I don't want to read those four verses again as we continue marching through the passage. Paul says this, and just hear the basics of the Christian life in this. this is what I want you to listen for: Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now, there's a lot he says there. But clearly, a mark of being a good servant of Jesus is that you walk in the basics. And apparently, Timothy was a younger pastor. We don't know exactly how old, probably somewhere in his 30s, maybe. And some wanted to look down on him for his youth and say, you don't really know what you're doing. You've not lived long enough here. Timothy, we shouldn't listen to you. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't try to be fancy. Don't try to be something you're not. Stick to the basics. Set an example in all the basics of Christian living. And Paul, by his actions here, says to us and to Christians everywhere, it's good to develop younger leaders, to invest in them. And I right? praise God that we had the chance to put two younger pastors before our church for nomination today. I would have you know, when this date was selected, this passage was not. Or at least they weren't in coordination with one another. It's not like I planned this. God just in his sovereign wisdom did that, and I think it's pretty awesome. But Paul's giving words to younger disciples, not just younger pastors. He's saying, embody humble living. Set an example in all the ways. Just think through what he says. Set an example in how you speak. Is that you? Do you set an example that you'd want the whole church to emulate how you speak? And in your conduct, and in your love, utter selfless love, not looking out for your own interest, but the interest of others, and in your faith in God, not being gripped by fear, but having faith in the one who made all things and holds all things in the palm of his hand, who will reign forever. Do you set an example in your faith and in purity, in holiness? God is totally set apart, totally pure, totally holy. Do you set an example? Does that describe you? Christian, do you want a simple prayer for 2024? Write that verse out on a three-by-five card, or save it as a note in your phone, or however you remember this stuff, and simply pray, Lord, I need your help. I need your strength that I may be an example in my speech, in my conduct, in my love, in my faith, and in my purity. And you look inward and ask him to show you how he will change your life. And then he talks not only about the life of Timothy, but then the life of the church. What does he say? When you're, until I come, devote yourself to publicly reading the scriptures, to teaching, explaining from them, and exhorting. Telling people, here's what you ought to do. I open it, read it, explain what it means, exhort you to live in light of it. That's about the least fancy church growth strategy you will ever find. Here's the Bible. Open it, read it, explain it, do it again next week. Praise God. Let's do that. Stick to the basics. And then he goes on, he says, Hey, know your gift, Timothy. You have a gift. All gifts are given to build up the body of Christ. We know that. 1 Corinthians 14 makes it really clear. Use your body to use your gift to build up the body. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Don't try to be Superman. Don't try to be Jesus. He's really good at his job, but he has given you one, so you be faithful to your part. And the threat seems to be there's always something fancy, something shiny out there. The next big thing that we want to focus on instead of the basics. Getting up early time with Jesus, confessing my sin, time in the word. As a church, something grabs your eyes. Good things, right, in the present area where we're at as a church, you could easily get latched on to some of these building things we're doing, either remodeling the auditorium or the expansion over at Bethesda Christian Schools. We're excited for both praising God for both, seeking to see how God provides for both. Those aren't the basics. They aren't the most fundamental things we're after of making disciples of Jesus Christ according to the book. May we resolve to walk in the basics as individuals and as a church. Paul says to Timothy, this is really important. And there's one thing assumed in there. He assumes that they're living in community. Because what does he say? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. People are walking closely with you, and they can remember when you were not as mature as a Christian. And see, I saw that brother grow. I saw that, Christ, that, that sister start to look more like Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When the brothers and sisters are together following the Lord, watching one another grow. And can I tell you, when you see progress in others, tell them, hey, I see how the Lord is changing you. I praise God for what he's doing in your life right there. I hope that I could grow to be more like that. There was a time several years ago I was coaching basketball. We had a really bad team this particular year. And as the coach, that meant I had high levels of frustration and there was one particular day where the guy from the newspaper came to interview us after a, a loss that was extra frustrating to me, and I was just really negative in the newspaper. Said some things I really wish I wouldn't have said on the record, and, uh, and that was not great. And I read, oh man, you're a you're knucklehead, what are you doing? And uh, so I tried to learn from it. A couple months later, we go on to the end of the season and, uh, and we, we lost, and there was kind of an end of season deal in the newspaper, and I talked about how our seniors had done a really good job of leading, and I was much more positive towards them. And I'll never forget, I was standing right over there on one of those steps, and somebody came up to me and said, I read your art, the, uh, the article in the, uh, the paper about the team, and I love how you are so positive towards those boys. You know what he didn't do? He didn't say, boy, that was a really, really stupid thing you said two and a half months ago in the newspaper he saw progress, praised progress, never brought up the other thing. I knew immediately he wasn't being heavy-handed with it. Friends, when you see progress in others, tell them, I see the grace of God in your life. And there's that impulse of like, well, I'm going to give them a big head. They're going to think they're better than they are. I've never met a Christian who struggles with having too much encouragement. Trust the Lord to do his work, to be humble together and encourage brothers and sisters as they're walking in holiness. And God will continue to use that. It's a beautiful thing that all may see our progress. Verse 16, look back at God's word with me. He sums it all up. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. All right, what's it mean? Obviously, your striving for holiness isn't saving anybody. Jesus is the Savior what he's saying is right doctrine plus right living together makes a powerful church. When the word of God is open and clearly explained and clearly lived out by the church, it is a beautiful thing to behold. Where there's confidence in God's word and in the grace we're receiving and an abundance of grace for one another, that creates a compelling community. People say, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I want to be part of that. You get pulled in you grow in holiness, you sit under God's word, and you're probably pulling in believers and unbelievers. And as God's word is explained, they realize their need for a Savior, and they are saved. That's how it's supposed to work. Let me tell you one one quick story as we wrap up here about keeping watch on our lives, what this looks like. I remember the first house we had. There were a lot of bugs in the house, and specifically a lot of spiders. And it probably should have bothered me more than it did, but it really bothered my wife. And what happened was the more I kept watch for the spiders, you know what I saw? More spiders. It's a little bit that way in our Christian life, isn't it? Sometimes we should be more bothered by things than we are, but as we're around people who are more closely attuned to the Holy Spirit, we start to see things in our own lives we ought to see, and we start to do something about it. You start to figure out, here's the little ones you can just step on real quick. But there's the bigger ones. You better get a sandal for that because it's going to squirt everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to figure out what to do with these spiders. And we're spraying the outside of the house. We're calling the Orkin man. We're doing all this. And the spiders are just coming. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. So, um, so we're doing this bathroom remodel. My father-in-law is over there. We like to say he helped me with it. It's more like he did it and I watched and brought him coffee when he was thirsty. But he looks at our cast iron tub and uh, he says, this thing's got to go. I'm like, "Ah, oh, come on, man. I don't know. I don't, it's a lot of work. I don't think we should do this. So he starts banging on this thing with a hammer and it just knocks loose, which comes off the wall. I'm like, I guess we're moving it now. <laughs> and... Um, Fortunately, at this point in time, we had um, a couple of kids from Cedarville were in town. They were staying with us for the weekend. This cast iron tub is like 400 pounds, and so these dudes all pick it up and carried it out of the house for us, and never could have carried it out on my own. And underneath the thing, we saw hundreds—I'm not joking—hundreds of spider eggs. Each egg containing hundreds of tiny spiders. And what we found out is we had an issue with the plumbing. And there's water pooling under the cast iron tub, not flowing out of the house like it's supposed to. And it's just an insect breeding ground. And we started out at the beginning by me not paying very close attention. I started to pay attention. When I kept watching what was going on in our house, I saw more and more and more. And as I got to the source, it got uglier and uglier and uglier. And we actually got the thing fixed with some help of our friends to carry out the tub, with the help of my father-in-law doing all the work, with the help of a bunch of really good inventors who sold their products to Lowe's so we could go in and fix the plumbing. It was all beyond me for the help that could be provided. And friends, when you keep watch on your life and on your teaching, you'll find something very, very similar. You start to look and it's gonna be uglier than you think. So I'm just gonna warn you on that. You start to look, it's not gonna be pretty what you find. You're gonna see more spiders running around in your life. And when you chase them back to the source of your own heart, it's going to be darker and there's going to be more spider eggs there than you ever thought there were. And it's going to make you kind of queasy. Except these spider eggs aren't like the the, the painless ones that live in a house. These are brown recluses. These are black widows. They will kill you. It's a matter of life. It's a matter of death. You must go back to the source. And you must recognize, you must recognize, I cannot put this to death entirely alone. I need the body of Christ to come alongside me, and I need to reach beyond myself to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can fix the root problem underneath the bathtub that's spawning all these spiders out. So recognize to keep watch will be painful, will be difficult, but by the grace of God, Jesus came, lived, died, was rose again to conquer death, free you from sin, and gave you the church whereby you could live a holy life honoring and pleasing to him and by watching yourself and your teaching and persisting in it others will be saved too this is what god calls good service of jesus christ to do let's pray